think the last part of that song really captures the amazingness of the love of Jesus, right? It's not just that Jesus loves, we understand that, but it's Jesus loves even me, which makes it incredibly shocking in a way. I but a sinner. Jesus loves me. That's a great song. Turning your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 11. I wonder, have you ever thought it odd when a speaker, a preacher, a comedian, or somebody like that stands up in front of a crowd and they start off by saying, how's everybody doing tonight? Or something like that. I always thought that was kind of weird because are they expecting an answer? Like, uh, do you want us to tell you or are you just kind of asking? And I think it kind of shows how pervasive and how um, prevalent small talk is. You know, because that's what we do whenever we try and break the ice and we try and walk up to somebody and we don't know exactly how to start the conversation. Hey, how are you doing? What's up? Something like that. We'll say, and really we're not asking anything per se. I mean, we're, we probably, I mean, we'd like a response, I suppose, but we're not necessarily wondering about how their day is going. It's more just an icebreaker. It, it's saying something without actually saying something. That's kind of what small talk is. You know, you're chatting with somebody, and you're not really engaged with a conversation, at least not a deep conversation with them. You're talking about you know, what the weather's like today, and you know, what about that sports team, and, and you know, what about the, the news cycle? We'll mention something about that. But essentially, it, they're conversations that, in the big scheme of things, don't really matter. Now, this morning, I've entitled our message, Prayers That Matter. Now, one thing I want to be careful to avoid here is, is to say, I'm not saying that there are prayers that don't matter, that uh, we shouldn't pray. Uh, the Lord invites us to bring all of our requests to him. But in the big scheme of things, I wonder how many of our prayers sound something like small talk, where we bring to God sort of the, the everyday things. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? There's nothing wrong with that or small talk for that matter. But I wonder how many of our prayers go deeper than just kind of superficial surface level. You know, a lot of our prayers are focused on, you know, pray for somebody's health, pray for safe travels, pray for good weather. And those are all fine things to pray for. But my concern is if we never pray for anything more than that, our prayers are, are on, a, on this level when I think the Lord desires that our prayers be deeper than that. And... We see that here in Paul's prayer for the Philippians, is that his prayer is not just concerned with the surface, it goes deep. One thing that we need to do to kind of adjust our thinking on this is, is ask ourselves this question. How often do our, our prayers focus on God's desires for us, and how often do they focus on our desires for us? Because I think if you, if you ask that question, you'll see a slightly different focus in prayer, won't you? If, if our prayers are focused on what God desires for us, it'll often be towards maturity, Christ-likeness, towards love and good works, versus our desires for us tend to be our comfort, our ease, our pleasure, our good health and strength, and so on. Again, I'm not saying that there are some prayers that are you shouldn't pray, but rather... Do we pray prayers that really matter, that go beyond sort of the small talk of praying? 
Well, we're going to look at Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 1. And he gets to his actual request in verses 9 through 11. Now, previously, he had started his thanksgiving prayer all the way back in verse 3. So 3 through 8 is, is thanksgiving. Now he gets to the actual request that he makes for the Philippians. And I want us to study and look at Paul's prayer and see what we learned this morning. One author I read this week noted, It is always a little embarrassing to study the prayers of Paul in the Bible because you realize how little we pray in that way. It's important to bring our specific needs to God in prayer like sickness, job, food, money, activities, and so forth. However, Paul seems to emphasize the spiritual qualities needed in a person's life. And that's why I'm calling these prayers that matter. Now when we get to verses 9 through 11 in Philippians 1, this is one long sentence in Greek, which the language it was originally written in. Now, ours will probably break it down somewhat, but essentially, this is one long, continuous thought, one request that develops as it goes. It's as if Paul starts in in verse 9 and says, here's what I desire, and then it sort of just keeps adding to that and clarifying that as we keep reading. Here's the content of Paul's prayer. And if I could put it in a sentence, here's what he's praying for them. That their lives would glorify God by being marked with love and truth. And I think that's the same thing that we need. His prayer for them is essentially what we need in our lives. A life that glorifies God is marked by love and truth. Let's, Let's look at these verses. And as we study them, I want us to notice first the request, second the reason for his prayer, and finally the result of his prayer. So let's begin first with the request that he makes. Look at verse 9 together. And this I pray that, you, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That's where this prayer begins. Now, this is interesting. As you look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament, we can learn a lot from the content, in other words, what he prays, as well as his attitude in prayer. Here, though, is the focus is on the content. You notice at the very beginning of verse 9, he says, And this I pray. In other words, I'm going to tell you now what it is that I'm praying for you. So Paul's going to give the Philippians a little glimpse of, of the actual prayers that he makes on their behalf. And here's what he says. My prayer is this, that your love would abound still more and more. So if we could clarify what the request is, it's for abounding love. Abounding love. And this doesn't really surprise us too much, does it? Because Paul talks a lot about love. The New Testament says a lot about love. It's a chief and defining characteristic. As we look at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the first of the fruits of the Spirit is love followed by joy and peace in others. Love is said in in the New Testament to be the characteristic of a disciple. They will know you are my disciples by your love. We uh, last year studied 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that marvelous chapter that expands and really helps us to understand what all love does. And, And so it's no surprise here that for the Philippians, his prayer is that your love would abound more and more. The question is, your love for what? You notice in verse 9, he gives no object there. It's, it's love. Your love would abound. Well, love for God, love for each other, love for the Word, love for the lost world around us. What love are you talking about here? 
I think he intentionally leaves it open-ended. That your love for God, your love for your brother, your love for the lost, your love for, your love for all of these things would continue to grow, each within measure. And, and we notice this with love. That when we grow in one of these areas, it's often going to cause us to grow in others, right? The more we love God, the more we're going to love our neighbor. The more we love God, the more we're going to love the lost. The more we love his word. And the more we love his word, the more we are going to love God. And you see how these interplay with one another. So we're to abound in love. Now this is a favorite word of the Apostle Paul, this word abound. He uses it fairly often, much more than you think. It really means to overflow, to exceed a measurement. So you think of a, a dam or a levee that's holding off water. You want the water to stay below the top of the dam, right? That's the measure. If it overflows, in that case, you have a problem. But Paul's saying, I want, I want your love to exceed even the boundaries, to spill out and spill over to everyone around you. In other words, there should be no question for the Philippians. There shouldn't, people shouldn't wonder if they're a loving church, if they're loving people. It should be overly obvious. In fact, almost over the top in their love for one another. That this church should be overflowing with love, abounding. It's interesting, the same word, abundance or overflowing, is used in Matthew, and in all the Gospels actually, for the feeding of the 5,000. You remember after Jesus feeds the 5,000, it said they came back with abundance. So everyone had their fill and there was some left over. And that's the picture of our love, is that we love others and there's still some left over. Abounding in love. And then he adds to that more and more. So it's, it's a love which, you kind of get his point here, right? It's an abounding love that goes more and more. It's, it, there's no end to it. Love should just be overflowing from our lives. Now as we think about this term love, we understand here that this is something in the New Testament that's commanded of us. We're commanded to love. Emotions cannot be commanded. And so love is not solely an emotion. Now, love may have emotions that come along with it, but love is an action. It's something that we choose to do, to treat someone else with honor and dignity. It's to treat someone else with a self-sacrificing, loving commitment to them. So love is an action, not just a feeling. And it's to abound more and more. The question I think I was thinking about as I read this is, well, what do we, what do we want more and more? Uh, again, if we go back to our prayers, well, what are we praying for more and more, Lord? Are we praying for more and more opportunities, more and more money, more and more what? Uh, usually there's something... I would dare say all of us, if we step back, would say there's something that's lacking in my life that I need more of. I just wonder if we would identify the same thing Paul would, that it's love is the thing that I need. I mean, how often have we prayed for ourselves or for another? Lord, cause that person's love to abound. Cause my love to grow, Lord. But of course, we must also ask the question, what kind of love is Paul talking about here? Again, most people's view of love is sort of this syrupy, mushy sentiment. You know, love is this feeling of goodness for all of humanity, and uh, 
Certainly love would never point out someone else's wrong. Certainly love would never point out sin or be judgmental. But what kind of love is Paul talking about here? Well, he defines it, and he gives us two terms in verse 9. He says, I pray that your love would abound more and more in two qualities. First of all, in knowledge. In knowledge. So love without knowledge is not real love at all. Love must be according to knowledge. Uh, We can say that we love God, but what do we know about him? Lots of people would say, yes, I love God. But if you start to ask questions and, and you really start to understand what they mean by God, they're not really talking about the God of the Bible. So however you feel about this concept of God, it's not according to knowledge. It's not real biblical love. You see, love must be in accord with knowledge. It must correspond to the truth. And this term that's translated knowledge here is almost always in the New Testament used for the scriptures for spiritual knowledge. So it should be according to truth. As uh, we study 1 John, kind of sporadically here on Sunday mornings, we're going to notice that John and his letters will oftentimes connect love and truth together. Just a fascinating little note. Love should be coupled with knowledge. Spiritual, biblical knowledge. In other words, love is not blind. At least not to biblical truth. And anything that purports to be love, but that's out of step with Scripture, is in fact not biblical love. So it doesn't matter how much two people, quote-unquote, love each other. It is... They are bound to biblical obedience. And so love can be used to try and explain all kinds of things away. Well, you know, it's, it's loving, so we're going to do it. It's like it must comport to knowledge. Uh, one of the things the Bible does consistently is expose sin. If you do the same, you might be accused of being unloving. You're not loving. But love without biblical knowledge and conviction is not real love. However... We also have to take into account the other side. We can have knowledge without love, can't we? Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up. So knowledge, if it has not love, leads to a sense of arrogance and self-importance. So we we can't suggest that truth itself, by itself, is should be sought. It should be truth and love. That's why I say the life that glorifies God is marked by truth and love, knowledge. second term he uses, though, in verse 9 is discernment. Discernment. This is a very rare word. In fact, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. But it's an even more rare quality. The word here, well, the previous word, knowledge, refers to Things that we know. It talks about belief. This word talks about behavior. Belief and behavior. The two go hand in hand. You see, discernment is going to be applying the truth, the knowledge that we have. Now, the word that's translated discernment here, I said, is only used once in the New Testament. It has the idea of insight or understanding. It is, however, used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So in the Septuagint, which is, was written hundreds of years, or, well, about 100 years or so before the New Testament, 
In the Septuagint, in the translation of the book of Proverbs, this word appears over and over and over again, 22 times. So in other words, this idea of discernment here is the same thing that we're reading in Proverbs, the application of truth to life. You take truth, you apply it. You take truth, you apply it. That's the idea here, that love should abound, but that should not be separated from knowledge. It should be defined by knowledge and then applied in discernment, insight. You see, it takes into account the complexities of life and applies the truth. One New Testament scholar says that the emphasis of this word is on the understanding that penetrates beneath the surface to the complexity of something along with its implications. Discernment is the quality. It is a quality that each of us should learn and develop. It means being able to think carefully, critically, and biblically about people, things, and ideas. The word is pointing us towards applying scripture to life. Now, the ability to apply biblical truth to life is one of the most underdeveloped skills in the church today. And the reason is, it's hard. It's hard. Our, our flesh wants to go the opposite direction. So obeying Scripture is hard. Obeying the flesh is easy. Being led by the Spirit of God is hard. Being led away into sin is easy. So we oftentimes take the easy road. Longtime pastor Chuck Swindoll sees these two qualities, knowledge and discernment, and he pictures them as two banks of a river. So imagine you have this river, which is love. And the two banks of the river are knowledge and discernment. They hem the river in. They define where it will flow. You see, if the, the river, and, and I know he's already said overflowing, abounding in love, but when love abounds, so should knowledge and discernment. So as the river swells, so do the banks. You see, and it gives parameters for that love. Our love is not just flowing freely wherever it wants to go. It flows according to knowledge and discernment. So we see his prayers for them to abound in love. Second, his prayer for them is that they grow in biblical judgment. Biblical judgment. I'll just briefly mention this because we'll talk about it more when we talk about reason, the reason for his prayer. But look at verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. He says we should approve the things which are excellent. We'll talk about, more about what that means. But that's part of his prayer for them. That's part of the request, that they would approve those things which are excellent. So what do we learn from Paul's request here? Well, let me point out three things quickly. Love must be based on knowledge. That's what we just said. That's what this verse has been indicating. Love must be based on knowledge. There's no true love apart from a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his truth. Number two, we must grow in our understanding and practice of discernment. We must grow in our knowledge and our understanding and practice of discernment. So as the text says our love should abound more and more, so should knowledge and the practical use of it. And that's not something that happens automatically. Look, if you will, over to Hebrews chapter 5 for a second. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, says this. Solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use 
have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. See what it's saying? That the person who is feasting on the word and who is putting into practice is growing in this quality of being able to discern right and wrong. But notice that. It takes practice. Who by reason of use, they, they practice discernment and so they grow in it. And that's the only way you will, is to practice discernment, biblically thinking, thinking critically and biblically about things. And I, I commend you for being here this morning, because one of the ways you're going to grow in a knowledge and in discernment is by being under the teaching of God's Word. So just, just showing up here is at least a part of the picture, when it comes to learning and using biblical discernment. Third, though, growth in discerning love is never complete. Growth in discerning love is never complete. You never arrive. Uh, Would you say that you are abounding more and more in love this morning? Well, I I hope that we have love, but my guess is we would probably say, I could always use more, right? Because Paul is saying more and more. You always need more love. It's never enough. It's never enough. We, we never reach a point where there's enough love flowing out of our lives. We always need to be praying for ourselves and for others that love would abound more and more. I've said this, and you, you may have even heard me say this before. When you go to the dentist, uh, you, you come in, you sit down, and one of the first questions the dentist always asks you is, how often do you brush your teeth? You know, how often do you floss and all that, those questions. And for the dentist, it's never enough. You ever notice this? I, I'm convinced that if you went to the dentist and you said, uh, Doctor, I brush my teeth 23 hours a day, he'd probably be like, here, I'll give you a toothbrush, go brush more, you know, and send you out of the office. Because that's, that's what dentists do, right? You always can brush more. I mean, you always could brush more than you do. And the same is true with love, biblically speaking. It's never enough. There's always could be more. So growing in abounding love is never complete. It's something that we should always be praying for. So is your life one that's overflowing with knowledgeable love and loving discernment? Let's go on to the reason, though. So the request is that they would abound in love. The reason for his prayer, though, is that they would put this discerning knowledge and love into practice. So he gives us a reason for his prayer in verse 10. Again, look at it with me. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So you can see how knowledge and discernment leads into verse 10. Uh, They're not only needed to put bounds, proper bounds on our love, they're also to be practiced. He says here in the beginning of verse 10 that you may approve things. Or another way to translate that is test things. The word approving here means to test or examine something in order to see if it passes the test. If it's approved, then it's accepted. If not, it's rejected. So this is discernment. Judging between two things to see whether it's right or wrong. Truth or lies. The word that's used here in ancient times um, referred to someone who could test or who might test money. 
a lot of counterfeit currency was traveling around, even in ancient times. And so you would test a coin. You would check it, examine it closely to see if it was the real thing or not. And, and if it passed the test, it was approved. If not, it was discarded as a fake. It was also used for testing other things. I was thinking about this, and I think a modern-day illustration would be on this matter of approving something or testing is what you do when you go to a used car lot. You go to a used car lot, you know there that the cars are used and that they have been driven. They probably don't have a warranty anymore. And so you want to check that car, right, to make sure it's okay. So you walk around, you kick the tires, even though you don't really know why you're kicking the tires or what you're looking for. You get down on the ground, maybe you look underneath, make sure it's not leaking any fluids or anything like that. You, you look around the car, the body, for scratches or anything that looks odd. Then you get inside the car, and you check to make sure everything's okay in there. And you kind of look over things and uh, make sure there's nothing unusual, any stains on the carpet or so on. About a year ago, we were looking for a van, and I found one online that looked great. It looked like it was in good shape. Looked like it had it had good mileage. It was the right price. You know everything seemed good about it. So I called and walked up there to see it. I went up to the car and opened the door, and the smell of cigarette smoke was just overwhelming. Um, so I suddenly realized why they were having trouble selling this, or why it was still on the market and hadn't been sold already. Uh, those are the things you got to test. And what's the most important part, right? of checking out the used car is the test drive. Because not only do you want to walk around and see that everything's okay, you want to get in and drive it. You want to see how it handles. You want to see if there's any strange noises coming out from underneath the hood. So you test it to see if it's, if it's good. That's the idea here of this word, to approve. It, to test something to make sure it passes that test. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold to that which is good, avoid every form of evil. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to approve all things? What does it mean here in verse 10 to approve the things which are excellent? Well, it means to practice that biblical discernment we've already mentioned. To think critically and biblically to take every thought captive, every philosophy that crosses our path, every idea that's out there. And there are so many theories and ideologies in our world, but all of them should be tested to see, do they agree with the Bible or not? Does it hold up to the, the measure of biblical truth? John MacArthur, in his book, Reckless Faith, defines discernment as the ability to understand, interpret, and apply truth skillfully. So discernment means being able to, to distinguish, first, between right and wrong. It's the ability to discern between right and wrong. Being able to look at something and make a judgment. Is this right? Is it wrong? And what's our standard? The Bible. The scriptures that God has given us. So we can look at whether it be ideas, whether it's something that we're being encouraged to do, whether something we're uh, being told is true. Maybe it's something even in the world of the church and theology. You know, we're being told, hey, you believe this. Test it. Test it by Scripture. That's the nature of discernment. We check to see if it's right or wrong. There's a lot of pragmatism that has worked its way into the church and kind of replaced 
this idea of discernment. And so in other words, we look to see if something works, not whether it's right or wrong. Right? So, so if we do something and it gets 5,000 people in the church, well, pff, let's do that. It's like, well, wait a second. Let's stop to see if that's something that we should be doing or not. The question shouldn't be, does it work? At least not first. The question should be, is it biblical? Testing, right and wrong. The sermon also is a matter of testing what is good and better. You know, it may not always be a matter of between right and and wrong, but what's, what's good, you know, what's fine, and what's maybe the better option? Uh, in fact, this word here, excellent, that's translated in the text, uh, refers to something that's significant or essential. Uh, another way that sometimes this verse is translated is test and approve the things that matter. So the contrast may be between, okay, yeah, there's, we could be doing this, which wouldn't be wrong, you know, it's not necessarily evil, but maybe there's something better we could be doing or should be doing. And discernment tests between those things. Third, discernment also means being able to discern between or, or judge between what is important and what is irrelevant. Again, this word excellent could be translated things that matter. It's, it's opposite is a word translated non-essentials. So being able to test between what matters and what doesn't. Not every hill is a hill to die on. Not every argument is worth having. And sometimes this is missed because sometimes people who are very good at telling right from wrong take the approach of just beating people over the head with what is right, the truth. And we need to be careful, be able to say, is this something worth that, that we need to have a fight about? And unfortunately, there's a lot of churches that have been split and hurt deeply because people fought about things that were irrelevant in the bigger picture. And that people made a huge deal out of something that wasn't a big deal at all. And I think discernment is, it is about telling right from wrong. I'm not saying that that's, we shouldn't do that. But I say we should also be careful to realize what's a, what's a fight that we think is something that's essential versus something that's non-essential. As Christians living in this day and age, we need to have the ability to judge all things, to discern between what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, but also what matters and what doesn't. I think one of the questions that emerges from this verse to me is, what do we spend our lives on? Is it things that, are, that don't matter or things that do? It, you know, if you have discernment and you're able to tell what matters and what doesn't, how are we spending our lives? Are we spending it on the things that do matter or on the things, stuff that doesn't? Because you can spend your life chasing after money, possessions, acclaim, you, know, you name it. We can search after all those things. But in the greater scheme of eternity, do those matter? That ability to be able to discern what matters and what doesn't is essential. And I'm grateful for those who know the difference. Even in our own church, I've seen people here practice biblical discernment, thinking critically about things, thinking biblically about things. And it, it is a wonderful thing to behold when people embrace a biblical worldview that can tell the difference. Finally, though, we want to look at the result of his prayer, though. The result of Paul's prayer. 
prayer is always with a purpose, right? When we pray for healing, for instance, and we pray for safe travels, it's for the result that God would protect that person, that God would heal that person. Well, here, Paul's prayer for their love to abound is for the purpose that they would be mature, that they would be holy. Listen to what he says, and this this begins in verse 10 and goes all the way to the, the end of verse 11. That you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So his desire for the Philippians is that they would grow and abound in knowledge and discerning love, the result being their fruitfulness, their maturity, and ultimately for God's glory. So what's, what's the result of this prayer? First, it's that you will grow. That you will grow. Mature. He says here in verse 10 that you would be sincere and without offense. Sincere and blameless, these two terms. So sincere has the idea of being without hypocrisy. It's an interesting word that's used here. It actually means sun-tested or tested by the sun. And it has that idea of something being brought out into the light where it can be seen. You know, Hypocrisy loves to be hidden in the darkness. And so if it's tested by the sun or in the sun, it's brought out where it's visible in the light. Interestingly, we know from Bible times and beyond that in the ancient world there was a lot of pottery. In fact, I, I meant to bring it and I forgot this morning, but I have a whole uh, shoebox full of pottery I brought back from Israel. And you might say, well, how did, how did you get that through customs? Are you stealing artifacts from Israel, Reed? Well, the truth is, if you go to an archaeological site, there is so much pottery that they dig up from these sites that there are literally piles that they shovel away and throw away because they just they can't count at all. And so they let us students take from the pickings of what was left over. The point is, Pottery was everywhere. I mean, it was as prevalent in Bible times as plastic is today. Uh, you stored things in there. You, you ate from pottery. You drank from pottery. You kept things in it. It was used for everyday purposes. Now, some of it was clunky, thick, you know, just plain old pottery that you would used every day in the house. And then there was fine pottery, which was much thinner. And oftentimes it was painted and was an item of beauty. Well, when, in ancient times, when they would fire these pots in the kiln, they would sometimes develop a crack. And the, the better merchants would say, it's, it's ruined, throw it out, throw it away, we'll make another. The less honest merchants, however, were known to have taken wax. And they would take wax and sort of fill that crack, smooth it over, and then they would paint or glaze the pot so that you wouldn't be able to tell. And you know, on the outside, it just looks like all the other pots. However, you could take that and test it by the sun. If you held it up in the sunlight, the light would stream through that crack. So this had a practice in, in the Roman world, where Latin was the common language, that people who wanted to make sure that their business was on the up and up would post a little sign outside their, their door that said, Sincera without wax. It's where we get the word sincere. Without wax. It's, it's the real deal. It's not, we're not faking it. 
And see, that's Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that they're not faking sort of a spirituality, that, that they're putting on some mask like they're more spiritual and more holy than they actually are. Instead, he says, when you're growing in love, the kind of love that's marked by knowledge and discernment, you're the real deal. You're not faking it. Not only that, he says, that they would be blameless without stumbling. Again, without hypocrisy. Doesn't mean that they never make a mistake or anything like that, but rather they're pursuing a life that is growing in maturity, sincere and blameless. And then he says in verse, nine, uh, excuse me, verse 10 that you would be blameless until the day of Christ. Now that phrase, day of Christ, already came up in verse 6 of chapter 1. And we said there that the day of Christ and day of the Lord are essentially the same thing. However, they have a slightly different focus. Day of the Lord tends to focus on the judgment, that the Lord is coming back, and he's coming back with great wrath. Day of Christ, however, seems to emphasize Jesus is coming back, and with him is his reward for those who have been faithful. See, those who are in Christ, who are living with this abounding love, look forward to the day of Christ, because for them it's a day of reward. Finally, though, he also mentions that they are fruitful. So as we're growing, sincere, blameless, and then fruitful, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Now, fruit is used in the Bible, right, for, as a metaphor for spiritual growth. You talk about the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we're, we're being fruitful, um, producing fruit. Here, it's Paul's request that they would have the fruits of righteousness, and I think that Paul is highlighting this fact based on the fact that the day of Christ, which we just taught, we will be clothed in righteousness provided by Jesus Christ. And it's, it's as if Paul wants to make clear to us here, you do not stand before the Lord because you're sincere and blameless. Okay? You will not stand before God because you were sincere, you were blameless, you did the right stuff. You will stand before God clothed in the righteousness provided to you by Jesus. Jesus did it all. You're not right with God because you abound in love and knowledge. Uh, you're reconciled to God because you've been given something. The free gift, the righteousness which comes by faith. That we believe in Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross made you right before a holy God. And so Jesus' perfect record is credited to you so that when God views my record, it is as though he is looking at Christ, that righteousness we've received. But here, he says, the filled with the fruit of righteousness, that, those things that are a product of a life that's changed, that is righteous because of Jesus. What's the ultimate goal, though? So Paul, the reason, the result of his, his prayer is that they would grow, mature, but it's also that God would be glorified. And this is where I want to close our sermon. It's where the passage ends. Look at the end of verse 11. All this is to the glory and praise of God. Now, we may not think that the end of verse 11 is the most important part of the passage, but I think it spells out the primary result of his prayer. That God would be glorified in the Philippians. Paul's prayer 
for us would be that God would be magnified in our lives. What has been done for us, been done in us, will all be for the praise and the glory of God. And so I simply want to remind us this morning that it's not about us. Paul's prayer is ultimately not about the Philippians. It's about God. That God would be glorified and that the Philippians would be part, a piece of that puzzle by which God is glorified. So our prayers, I think, if, if we're going to pray prayers that matter, it should reflect Paul's goal in praying, which is for God to be glorified. It, everything in the universe is all about God. Let's not forget that, because I think we do. We, we think stuff's about us. And honestly, I stand up here and I preach the scriptures week by week, and I, I oftentimes will try to show how this text applies to us today and try and show how, how the scriptures speak to our situations. But I'm afraid sometimes it can give the impression that, oh, the Bible's all about me. And it's all about, it's not about you. It really is not. It's all about God. I can tell you this. A thousand years into eternity, we're not going to take a break from singing God's praise and be like, hey, let's just have one stanza praising Reed for his goodness, okay, and his magnificence. No, will not happen. Because eternity is not about Reed. It's not about you. It's not about any of us. It's about God receiving all the glory forever and ever. And I think our prayers ought to reflect that. That the goal of our praying is not just so that we would have a good weekend, not just that it wouldn't rain on our picnic, not just that um, this uh, infection would be healed, but our prayers should be that God would be glorified. And we're going to see that. That was Paul's perspective on all of life. That's why he's in a prison as he writes this, and it's the most joy-filled letter you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. Why is Paul happy that he's in jail? It's that Christ is magnified in his life. Christ is getting the glory. God is exalted through his suffering. And so Paul says, I'm happy with that. Because he had that singular focus of God be praised in all things. So if I've I've accomplished anything this morning, let it be that we should decrease, that I should decrease, and your love and appreciation for God should increase. He is the purpose of all things. So let God be glorified. I think if our prayers are to be prayers that really matter, that go beyond sort of the surface level, their prayers ultimately focused upon God's glory and the praise that he receives. This prayer is a model for us of praying in a way that really matters. I hope these truths sink into us, but most of all, that the Lord Jesus would be glorified through us.